is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and this episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. On today's show, we are reviving a long-running and long-dormant series, ranking every Best Picture winner decade by decade. The last time we recorded one, we ran through the 51st through 60th winners, where we named Ordinary People and Amadeus as our favorite of the crop. On this show, we are going through the 61st through 70th Best Picture winners, an era that spans from 1988 to 1997. This was the era of actors turning directors, putting out their passion projects. We saw such films like Born on the Fourth of July, Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction, The Shawshank Redemption, Fargo, and L.A. Confidential all lose the top award, despite now being regarded as some of the greatest American films ever made. Since the title of this series changes every time a Best Picture winner is named, we will now commence with From Wings to Green Book, 1988 to 1997. As always, at the end of the episode, we will name our own Best Performances and Best Picture. And joining me once again on this journey is Stephanie Pryor. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me again. So we've been doing this for a few decades now. Originally, I'd started out doing this with Andreas, and then after he left the show, you have sort of gracefully stepped up into this role of me forcing you to watch every <laughs> Best Picture nominee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. This, I'm not going to say how long it took, but it took us a while to get through all ten. Yeah. It was a bit of a slog at times. There were a few, you know, event things that happened in our both of our lives, which caused this to keep uh, keep going, but we finally made it. It also didn't help that every movie seemed to be three hours oh or longer. Yes. Which meant dedicating time to do it was really difficult. Yeah, no movie marathons for this this decade. It, yeah, because I think we, we did do a, at least one decade or two decades where we would cram in three or four in a weekend and be able to watch them all so close together that it's easy to recall all the details and all the minor stuff. So hopefully we don't seem too rusty with this (laughs) go around. Uh, We are going to condense this to just one episode instead of two. Um, So this is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do, but I think it's going to still be the same great content that you have come to know and love. Now, I would be remiss to not mention that Uh, The actor Peter Fonda has died at the age of 79 from lung cancer. Uh, We just found this out right before we started recording, and he is someone that was very well regarded and respected in the industry. He was nominated for Best Actor in Uli's Gold and uh, Best Original Screenplay for Easy Rider, the the movie he is most well known for, for writing and starring in. And he is the brother of Jane Fonda and the father of Bridget Fonda. He will be sorely missed, and his contributions for film are absolutely monumental. But without further ado, we are going to get into uh, this countdown. So the way this is going to work is we are going to run from 10 through 1. We came to these rankings by both Stephanie and I giving each film a rating, and then we took the average of that rating, and this is how it turned out. So it's not going to be quite in order, but this is how it goes. So without further ado, what do we got coming in at number 10? All right, so number 10 uh, came in uh, with Driving Miss Daisy. So it is a film about an old Jewish woman and her African-American chauffeur in the American South who have a relationship that grows and improves over the years. Um, This clearly was on the bottom of both of our lists, and we had strong opinions about it, but what were your initial thoughts? This 
is an all-time bad film. <laughs> like, we going through this show, if you go back, if you've listened to all of them, or if you want to go back and hear what we said, every once in a while there is a movie that came up where it's, like, absolutely shocking that it was considered good, that it won Best Picture, that anything about it, there was any sort of positives. And this is a movie that is shockingly bad, especially considering a lot of the people involved in it. You know, Jessica Tandy and Morgan Freeman and Dan Aykroyd are all well-respected and very talented performers. And yet, this is a giant mess of a film that I would, you know, in the last year, Green Book just won Best Picture. I would consider this a companion film of uh, old white people patting themselves on the back for going, yay, we solved racism, because yeah. that's what this movie was. Yeah, it's funny you bring up Green Book, because essentially it's almost very similar, uh, just with the roles reversed, but still with kind of the same characters. Oh, it absolutely is, yeah. It, it, it Green Book is the reversal of Driving Miss Daisy, and I think that is probably the best and most damning comparison you can yeah. make to it. Yeah, I, I was not thrilled with this film at all. I didn't think that it served a purpose. I thought that the pacing was very weird on this one. Like the, ti the, the timing and the years that go by in this film seem to be so short and so long. You don't really know where you are at any given point during the plot. So it's kind of confusing. And it's just very lackluster. There's, there's nothing redeeming about it. We're going to be comparing it to sort of a, another movie coming up very shortly in the sense of I agree where the time frame sort of jumps very quickly, but you can always tell what is happening based on world events happening in the background. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, you know, there's a big section of the movie that takes place during the, the Martin Luther King uh, Selma march and things like that. So you can always kind of know what is happening based on that sort of stuff the view from the south and then it eventually you know keeps going on and on up until whatever was the 80s uh when this movie sort of finishes but that doesn't really the annoying thing is all these things that happen in the background that happen in the background really just happen in the background i would say you know we're re-watching or i'm re-watching you're watching for the first time mad men i would compare it to that in the sense of you get an idea of what is happening in the world by hearing news stories emanating from the radio or TV or newspaper headlines. In Mad Men, what it does, I think, really well is it just sort of, you know, gives you little bits and pieces of, of what the world is thinking, right. and it helps shape the overarching world. You understand why someone is acting a certain way because something monumental in the background happened, whereas this, you get these monumental world events, and it's, it's literally just that. It's not addressed. It's, it's just there and forgotten and moved on from. Yeah. And there's nothing to that. Yeah, they're used as mile markers. But it's, it's almost as if um, you're a passenger in a car and you've seen mile marker one and you fall asleep and you wake up and all of a sudden you're at mile marker 12. And you're like, wait, what? When did we get here? <laughs> That's how I felt watching this movie. And I think the most frustrating thing is despite this movie taking place in the South during the civil rights era, the most racist incident of a black woman being the, uh, a black man being one of the lead characters uh, is about two thirds of the movie. They're going for a drive and the cops pull them over. 
Um, and they're like, why are you driving such a nice car, boy? And uh, they basically just let them off with a warning. And then later the cops are like, haha, what a sorry state of affairs this world is that you got a black man driving a Jewish lady. Yeah. And these are two groups of people that throughout history, especially in the South, especially in the U.S. in this era, had so much undue hardships placed upon them. And it is basically a punchline joke. And so, because you're watching this movie, you're like, oh, I've seen this before. The cops pull them over. Yeah. Oh, Morgan Freeman's character is probably going to get arrested or beat up or something. Or the Jewish lady's going to have some real anti-Semitism thrown her way or things like that. And nothing. Yeah. It's just a, oh, sorry state of affair. It's a very self-serving film and very little payoff. It, it really is. And, yeah. you know, Dan Aykroyd's a fantastic actor, but his southern accent starts <laughs> and ends with him going, Mama! And then after that, he completely drops it. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, this is, a, like... It's so much easier for us to rag on the bad movies. Like I, When we're watching these movies and I'm taking notes, I take way more notes on bad movies than I do on of good course, movies. Of course, yeah. Well, it's, it's like customer service. You always hear the bad remarks and the bad comments. You never have anyone tell you anything good. That's a great comparison. Yeah. Uh, I, okay, I will give the movie one piece of praise. There is a really clever shot... Uh, when Dan Aykroyd is getting dressed or putting on his suit and there are two mirrors and so you get the first the camera angle shows him it pulls back and you realize it's a mirror and then it pulls back even more and then you realize that it's a reflection of a mirror in a mirror and then it pulls back even more and right. then you see him yeah. and so it's a really interesting sort of clever shot and you're like where was this filmmaking where was this director for the rest of the movie i don't yeah, know it was yeah it was very because i'm spit out i'm pretty sure we both watched it and we're like wow that was really interesting yeah like in a movie that is so bad when both of us pause to be like that was cool and interesting and a great piece of work you know it's a bad movie yeah yeah i want to see that version of that movie <laughs> all right i i I feel like we can spend an hour ragging on this movie, but we are not. We're going to move yeah. to our number nine film, which is Forrest Gump. The presidencies of Kennedy and Johnson, the events of Vietnam, Watergate, and other history unfold through the perspective of an Alabama man with an IQ of 75. Bubba's family knew everything they was to know about the shrimping business. I know everything there is to know about the shrimping business. Purpose in this army to do whatever you tell me, drill sergeant. God damn it, Gump! You're a goddamn genius. That's the most outstanding answer I've ever heard. You must have a goddamn IQ of 160. You are goddamn gifted, Private Gump. I feel like that is doing a disservice of what the actual plot of Forrest Gump is. But I will ask you this: Does the movie? in your opinion, handle the fact that literally every single major milestone event that took place in the U.S. and the world from uh, from the 60s, from the 50s really, until the 90s, does that make sense? Or 80s, sorry, because I think the movie ends in 81. Does it make sense or is it just too much history crammed into a movie? Um, I think it does make sense and I think that 
the use of editing is very clever and makes it work. Um, as, as a viewer, I, I don't necessarily buy it and feel like all these events have like a common thread. I find that a far stretch. But I do appreciate what they do and, I, and I'm not confused by it or annoyed by it. Hmm. I think for me, it's summed up a little bit when um, Forrest has met first Kennedy when he's a, a football player and then he meets um, Johnson. I can't remember for what, but then he has to go. He goes to, shot, right? Yes, yeah, when he's getting the Medal of Honor or mm -hmm. something like that. I don't know. And then he meets um, Nixon. I think that might be when he, that's when he's getting the Medal of Honor. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's when, oh, I'm, I'm confusing. There's so many different historical elements. But whatever it is, he, he goes to meet Nixon, and he's telling someone, he goes, and I had to meet the president again. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, I kind of feel the same way yeah. where I think the story is really interesting when you're kind of throwing him into these events bit by bit, and it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of a, a little cool what if. But like by the end, I'm like, really, literally every single thing that ever happened that was important was because of him? Yeah, I know. That's what I didn't like about it. Like he's this, if, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. If, if Forrest Gump was um, like a, a Greek god or something who was sent to Earth and he doesn't know that he is a god and uh, his superpower godly ability whatever it is is that he will always be involved in whatever major event that happens like i i don't like i you didn't watch it but there was a character in in the movie deadpool 2 where her super her superpower is she's lucky uh that means that anytime there's a dangerous scenario she'll come out unscathed you know um a bullet will whiz right by her and mm -hmm. it's like well you know, that's not a superpower. Well, if it happens again and again and again and again, then it becomes a superpower. Okay. That's sort of what it feels like for his sure. yeah. with an IQ of 75. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess then I, the, the next question I would have for you is, did you find his intelligence the way that they portrayed it as condescending or offensive at all of him repeatedly we're being told that he is not a smart man. Um, I think it straddles a fine line, and I think the portrayal by Tom Hanks does a really good job. I, I do at times, though, do feel like it is condescending and a little offensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, A little, it seems to get piled on at times. Yeah. Um, and... I feel so bad for Robin Wright. She's a terrific actress. We know that. We've seen her in tons of things um, for so long now, and she's always so good. But I think her portrayal as Jenna might be one of the worst characters mm. ever. Mm -hmm. Like, is there... What sympathy are we supposed to have for this woman at all? Like, literally every single time she's on the screen, her only purpose is is to crush Forrest. Yeah. 
there is there is literally no redeeming aspects of it because the only time that she supposedly has a redeeming aspect is at the very end when she's basically pawning off her child yeah. and marrying Forrest for what? Because she finally realized after everything she has done and put him through that, oh, maybe he is the right guy. It seems more for like security and a fallback. It absolutely like, does. Yeah. Like if, if you were to be truly a cynic, you would think that the only reason why she married Forrest was to legally give Forrest Jr. a parent. Because if she dies, because we learn that she has HIV at the very end, HIV AIDS, um, if she dies and isn't legally married to Forrest, will Forrest be considered the father of the child? Mm -hmm. If they, if for whatever reason, he puts in a claim to uh, be his legal guardian and they go, well, I'm sorry, sir, but your IQ is right. too low. You can't be his father. He is now a child of the state. Mm -hmm. So selfishly, even her last act was wasn't to wasn't because she loved Forrest. Yeah, it was whether it's because of love for her child or however you want to look at it. But it clearly wasn't for Forrest. No, yeah. But like every single scene she's in and. Forrest is like, and then I never saw her again. And you're like, please let that be true. <laughs> and then she shows up again. <laughs> I've seen this movie before, so I know how yeah, it ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She shows up again. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> and like that running montage at the very end, I know it's supposed to be inspirational, but it's not inspirational. Uh, it's not even believable. I mean, this film, obviously... You you really have to go in yeah. with a dose of like... Suspends reality. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know... I think I turned to you and I said, after three years of running, you're not wearing the same pairs of shoes that you wore when you first started. No. Like, I'm sure, like, a marathon runner, when they're done their marathon, has to get a new <laughs> pair of shoes. And that was, like, 22 miles or whatever and, like, a marathon you would have is. Extremely ripped legs and blisters all in the beginning. And it's just like, <laughs> no. And also, if he's had all of these monumental. Um, brushes with fame where he's been on t television and met the president and he was famous for running cross country for three years he's talking to all these different people and telling them who he is and nobody recognizes him or knows him because jenny pulls out a scrapbook at the end showing all his, his <laughs> clippings and so like if his face was that you know in the news mm -hmm. someone had to have recognized him mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially in the south where celebrities are so highly regarded because not that there aren't a lot of celebrities to come out of the South, but it, it sort of is a very much uh, inclusive place. You're from a small town in Alabama. I'm sure everyone in Alabama knows who you are. And like you said, he's been all over magazines and yeah. on the news a million times and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So tell me, was there a redeeming quality for this movie for you? Tom Hanks's performance was good, despite the script being terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, and doing him no favors. You feel sympathy for Forrest because of Tom Hanks. Right. And I think his relationships with other characters make the film believable. His relationship with Bubba is really believable. His relationship with Lieutenant Dan is really believable. That you understand he has uh, a limitless amount of empathy as a character. And I think that's something that only not only Tom Hanks, but only Tom Hanks in that role really could have achieved. Because right. I was reading some of the trivia for it. 
they originally offered the role to Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. Oh, completely different films. The movie would be terrible. I love Bill Murray. And Chevy Chase, as much of an asshole as he is, is a comedic genius. But, like, neither of them... I know Bill Murray has recently done transfer to doing more dramatic stuff, but it's dramatic stuff where he's basically playing a sad clown. Right. Yep. Uh, Neither of them would have been able to handle the dramatic elements needed especially in the early 90s like that was not bill murray or chevy chase at that time no you're coming after uh like murray in the 80s run of ghostbusters and and stripes and things like that where it's all sarcasm and chevy chase coming off of the the national lampoon stuff that wouldn't fly with this character no i think they like i said would have been very different films and I think that it would have been even more condescending and very offensive. Mm-hmm. I can see it going that way. And how bad was the CGI? Oh, so bad. Like, I know it's the same year that Jurassic Park came out, <laughs> and it's unfair to compare the two, but, like, the CGI, what the hell? So bad. And I also just want to touch on the score. I hated the score. Great music choices. Too many. But so many. Uh, there was one scene in particular where they first arrived at Vietnam, and I think there's, like, three or four, like, song changes Within the span I, of a minute. I wrote it down. Uh, you have the classic Vietnam songs like Fortunate Son and All Along the Watchtower. Uh, I think there's about 10 different door songs that play in this movie. There's the Mama and the Papas. Uh, I know it's not really called, but something hap- happening. Um, there's the whole ping pong sequence scored by the doors where every cut shot is a different door song. Like, there must be a million music yeah, cues in this movie. Just so much. Great songs, great songs. But, I don't know. Too much. Too much. This this basically movie could be boiled down to uh, Tom Hanks in Too Much. Yeah. <laughs> so what do we got coming in at number eight? Okay, number eight, we have Rain Man. So according to IMDb, selfish yuppie Charlie Babbitt's father left a fortune to his savant brother, Raymond, and a pittance to Charlie. They travel cross-country. Um, what a cute little gift-wrapped synopsis that was. Um... I thought that this film was just okay. My favorite part would probably be Dustin Hoffman's portrayal of Raymond. Uh, What did you feel about this one? This is interesting. This is is very much a, a movie of its era, especially what, looking back, the, the sort of perception of people with different disabilities how that was reflected um you know they call dustin hoffman's character a savant but really today we would sort of look at it as uh, like high functioning autism and mm-hmm. things like that uh, where you can look at, at certain people where they would have zero social social cues but could literally recite from memory entire chapters of of novels word for word or i remember a few years ago there was a a man who made the news i wish i I knew his name who uh, a half an hour helicopter ride over new york city he was able to draw from memory literally an entire map of the city in stunning detail And, and so we we look at these people and understand that their brain works differently than than a lot of other people and understand that it's not something that should be pitied or looked down upon and i think this movie 
of this era is is trying very hard to not be condescending while unfortunately still falling into a lot of the traps of the way of people were looking at disabilities at that time. Mm -hmm. I would say by the end of the movie, I was quite surprised with the way they sort of handled it. But that isn't to say that there aren't still some pretty problematic aspects of the movie. Okay. So I think it's, it's, it's a movie that is very confusing to to judge in today's standards and what we know and and think is socially acceptable of the way to treat people with disabilities but also sort of appreciate the movie for what it was this is a this is a uh populist movie uh, something that's trying to please a lot of people with some you know fun sequences in a Tom Cruise charismatic lead while also sort of balancing I don't want to call it a message movie but there there's elements that make it not your typical blockbuster fare so it's it's a it's a movie that's really difficult to pin down how you should feel about it today versus judging it of how it should have been received when it came out right so so that's really tough Mm -hmm. that said I think both Cruz and Hoffman do some really interesting work. I think this is a era of Cruz where this this is this is obviously during an era of Cruz where he is at his absolute superstar stratosphere yep. and him trying to do something more serious for him. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always work. We do get a lot of the the grinning Cruz that, you know, yep. has become such a staple of him. So he isn't I would say in in the last you know decade or so, fifteen years or so, we've gotten a lot better performances out of him, a lot more nuanced and layered ones, and he isn't quite at that level at this movie. Despite I think at times he really does do some interesting stuff. Yeah, I I can agree with you to an extent. I think it's still very much you know the peak Tom Cruise Tom Cruise film. Um, you know, I could take his character from this film and insert him into, you know, Top Gun or The Firm or any of those movies during that time, and it would essentially be the same performance to me. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt. Mm-hmm. No, no, I totally get it. There, I, I think, you know, they always talk about the differences between uh, a movie star and an actor. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise is a movie star. Regardless what type of role he is playing, there is going to be an element of Tom Cruise-ness right. in every role. And so it sort of depends on whether or not he gets cast appropriately or if he's willing to do the work to differentiate himself enough. And I think as time has gone on, he has been able to keep the essence of the Tom Cruise brand while still being able to... Uh, bring something different to the table but at that time it yeah. really was you're casting tom cruise you're getting tom yeah. cruise yeah you're getting the the handsome guy that's always grinning and it's cocky and mm-hmm. what you think of when you think of tom cruise yeah and i think what ties in with that is his character arc in this film is very similar to all his other character arcs in all his other films where he comes out as cocky um, thinks he's got it all solved and something happens and, you know, he grows and changes and 
has redemption at the end. His character has redemption, which is very similar to what happens in this film. And I appreciate the character arc in this film. And I think that it's handled really well. And that it turns out really nice. But it is unfortunately predictable. It, it is, un- except for I would argue uh, near the end of the movie when uh, they're trying to get Hoffman's character permanently out of um, the hospital that he lives mm-hmm. in, Cruz's character is filing for guardianship. And I figured, you know, he's super passionate. He's learned. He's changed. He's ready to be a guardian that the state would award him guardianship of his brother. And right. I'm like, oh, this is what's going to be happening. <laughs> but I was actually pleasantly surprised when the state deemed him uh, incapable of being able to look after his brother because it is beyond a full-time job taking care of someone that, for the most part, needs all of their needs taken care of for them. Right. We're shown throughout the whole movie that Tom Cruise is... is barely holding on to the seams of being able to take care of him and there's and there's several moments where he just can't and he, he just can't do it and the, the understanding of this isn't a fun thing this isn't something you can just do when you want to do that being able, that taking care of someone with such a severe disability is such a full-time job you can't just be able to live a normal life in come and go as you please like Cruz's character does and take care of him. So the fact that they the judge denied Cruz guardianship, I actually really respect because I, I think that was the appropriate thing to do in the movie. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think that's fair. And also the that final scene where they're saying goodbye to each other, and I believe it's Dustin Hoffman getting on a train to go back to the mm-hmm. hospital, if I'm remembering correctly, um, was very touching and I think was very atypical of a Tom Cruise character. So I mm-hmm. thought that scene in particular did show nuance and a different side of Tom Cruise. It was humility that we're not yeah. used to when we think of Tom Cruise. For sure. Um, I think the last thing I want to touch on is like, this movie is, is so-so. Like there's a lot of really 80s cheese in this movie. <laughs> yeah. That's really hard to get past for, for me. Like I, I, real like actual 80s music, I have a hard time liking and appreciating the like super heavy synth stuff that's all i know you feel very (laughs) differently but i feel like that's all over the score of this movie and like sort of goes too in depth with we're going to tell you how to feel sort of thing Mm -hmm. um but one thing i i do really like is is hoffman's character i think does a great job where the camera really sort of shows you how his brain works so there's a lot of shots of focusing on textile details uh showing like the the finer things that raymond's character sees so so the details on jewelry or when he's playing cards in the casino the very close-ups of the card numbers and you understand how a character how a person like raymond they will hyper focus on something and so that's what you see and everything else in the world is completely blocked out to him And, and so i think they do a really good job of articulating how Raymond's brain works. Yeah, I would agree with that. For mm-hmm. sure. uh, so coming in at number seven, we have the English patient. The summary is, at the close of World War II, a young nurse tends to a badly burned plane crash victim. His past is shown in flashbacks, revealing an involvement in a fateful love affair. 
So, did you feel the love in this movie? Can you feel the love tonight? <laughs> um, I did, and I thought that the chemistry between between um, actually all the characters, all the cast members, was really good in this film, and I think that's kind of what had me enjoying it um, the most. What I knew going into this film was that it was long. Here, here's what I'll set up. What I knew for about this film is strictly based off of uh, that Seinfeld episode where Elaine goes to see the English patient and she hates it because it is long and because there's a scene that she says just doesn't make sense for her, which is sex in the tub. And here's how, how I took, what I took from actually watching the film finally after all these years of that being my only impression. Um, one, it is very long, but surprisingly, <laughs> it didn't bother me. With someone who kind of taps out at an hour and a half, um, I was surprised to, one, stay awake the whole time and not need a break, um, and two, enjoying it. Uh, and then the second thing I took away was there is no bath bathtub sex in this film. There is a scene where they're in a tub together and they are washing each other, but no bathtub sex. Elaine, I hope you're watching the clothes because I can't take my eyes off the passion. No, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't. It's too long. Quit telling your stupid story about the stupid desert and just die already. Die! Shh! Elaine, you don't like the movie? I hate it! I'll go to hell! Why didn't you say so in the first place? You're fired. Great, I'll wait for you outside. But um, I think I like this film more than you did, so why don't you start? Oh, sorry, I fell asleep, just uh. like I almost did in the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, this movie, I think, is the biggest split for us, uh, where you, I don't want to say you, you rated it very highly, but you rated it sort of highly, and I rated it pretty low. Um, there is just two little going on for so much of the movie where it's just sort of stringing you along this movie is adapted from a book and it felt like i was reading a book you know when you're reading a book and you're like i just want to see how this ends and you're like i get where the story is going but how does it end and and you're watching this movie and i just feel like i'm, I'm reading chapter after chapter of very long-winded descriptions mm -hmm. with the plot not advancing Sure, fair enough. And that's what it felt like because you get this this movie takes place in two different timelines. You have what I presume is just before, and then I think it's two or three days in total is the is the present, quote unquote. Um, and and all of it sort of takes so long. The present, I think, takes so long for these details to come. Uh, unraveled to get to what I actually found was a really interesting final 15 20 minutes when the reveal happened right. um, and, and all the storylines sort of converge I think it does a fantastic job and I'm like whoa that's really interesting if I was reading this as a book I'd be you know just missing my train stop reading and reading and reading because I want to I want to get to the end of this because it, it finally is getting my attention and I think that's the issue is where you read a book where three quarters of it's like all right and then finally the last quarter of the book is interesting and that's why I felt about this movie I think where 
it struggles or what my what I can feel is the, the issue with this film is that it wants to be two different stories. So you have the uh, Juliet the Noche story where she's taking care of this English patient and slowly learning his, his backstory and how he came to be where he's at. Um, and then you have his story, um, which is his love affair and his travelings and how, of course, he came to become the English patient. And so I feel like they, instead of sticking to one main story and focusing on that and being the core of the film, they straddled it having basically two stories go forward at once because you're introduced to Juliette Binoche's character, whose name I forget currently, um, and she's a nurse and she has friends and she keeps losing people that she loves and then she comes across this guy and she wants to help him and then she falls in love with this other guy who is like a like a bomb diffuser, diffuser guy yeah. so you get like her story alongside um ralph fine's story and so i think that they just went too deep into both mm-hmm. creating so much story that don't necessarily align with each other that kind of creates confusion and i just stopped caring and you stop caring because there's just so much going on whilst also not very much going on so it's just like you don't know where to invest your interest in mm-hmm. um having said that i did enjoy it i did enjoy all the performances and my question to you is do you think if they had just left it as a story from his the English patient's story from his perspective from start to finish without the mystery of who he is and the taking care of him and slowly unraveling his story, do you think that would have been a better or more interesting concrete film? Or do you think they needed this extra tack on? I don't think it would have been a better film. I, I, I think that they you need the mystery because you get the typical love story, which is, is, is sort of the bulk of the movie and, and the real draw of it. But I think where they, they add a nice layer to the to it all is when they introduce this idea of is Ray Fine's character a spy, a German spy or not a spy. And I think by adding that layer, it adds the tension that is needed to give the story more life. Mm-hmm. Because you have this love story and, and if you're only telling the love story aspect of it, uh, it's, in my opinion, a bit of a bland story. Because the way I, I, I'm watching it, and I find Ray Fine's character, before he gets in this plane accident, is burned and you can't tell who he is. Uh, frankly, a bit of a, a wet noodle. You know, he's, he's super serious. He can't understand social cues. He's a little bit rude to everyone. He doesn't want to talk to anyone. And then, bam, all of a sudden, he's in love. And, and I felt that the in love aspect sort of came in all at once. And we sort of disagreed a little bit. We talked about it afterwards. And you said he always loved her from the beginning. And I'm like, well, they didn't do a really good job showing it. It's just him being kind of a jerk. And then all of a sudden, he goes from saying... I once was on a car ride for 15 hours with someone and we didn't say a word. It was the best car ride of my life, um, getting her to shut up, basically, to them being stuck uh, in a sandstorm and talking all night and falling in love. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, what? where is this character coming from? This is a different person. But, you know, this that's obviously me. The, the magic of the love story 
didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. But throwing in the spy, not a spy element did work for me. Which is maybe just me being uh, a dude who hates romantic movies. No, I think that's totally fair. But on to argue that, I don't think that they dived into that spy, not a spy enough. I agree. I think that William Defoe's character had more of a, is he a spy, is he not a spy? Intrigue. And they dropped it too much as well. Also, what was the use of his character? It, Why was he even there? Yeah. I, I think that character could have been almost completely removed. Yeah. And it would have been fun. I think if they had combined his character with Ralph Fiennes' character, that would have been more interesting. Mm, I would say if they combined his character with um, Naveen Andrews' character, Kip, that might have been a bit better because those two stories on their own, uh, Kip was the, the bomb diffuser character. I think he kind of... I, I Like... He's in the movie for a while, and you're like, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. And then, oh my god, there's a love story with him and Juliette Binoche, and all of a sudden I should care. And I think the, I think if those two characters were maybe combined a little bit, that would have been a bit more interesting. If, if maybe Kip knew some story about Rafe Fine's backstory, that would have added the more intrigue, where he didn't trust him in understanding why Juliette Binoche was, was spending so much time with him and wanting to be so into him. I think that might have been a bit more of a, an interesting wrinkle. Okay, so what you're saying is we need to step aside and rewrite this script <laughs> and recreate this film. Uh, no. <laughs> um, it, the movie is like, what, like over two and a half hours, I feel like. I think if it was two hours, it would have been a lot better because it just seemed... In, in the past story where you've got the Kristen Stock, Scott Thomas character and Ray finds their love story, it just kept being like, ooh, their love, oh, now they need to be in separate. Oh, now they're back together and they're going to be in love. Oh, now they're separate. And that went on like four or five times where it's like, ooh, we need to hide from Colin Firth, who's her husband, and she doesn't, he doesn't know that he's cheating on her and all this sort of stuff. And like it happened so many times where you're like, you, only, you really only need to show that once or twice mm -hmm. to understand the implications of their affair. Right. But it kept happening. We're like, ooh, Colin Firth is just around the corner. We cannot <laughs> let him find us cheating on him or having sex and blah, blah, blah. And I think if that was not cut out, because I, I understand that by adding that, that wrinkle of the affair, that it's not just a typical love story, it's the affair. That's what adds the wrinkle to it, the layers, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, you need it, but I think if you cut out a couple of those interactions and you cut out a chunk of where it's just Ray Fiennes and uh, Juliette Binoche, I think you would have a much more concise film that flowed a little bit better. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I say this as someone that's a fan of director Anthony Minghella. I think he is a terrific director. You know, Talented Mr. Ripley is one of my all-time favorite movies. I think it's just a, a brilliant thriller. Um, so the man really does know how to craft a taut narrative and I think this might have just gotten away from him in the editing room where he wanted to add so much more because I, I was reading that apparently the original cut was over four hours oh my yeah, I, I would never have watched that <laughs> which to be fair isn't like a shocker you, you know most times a director yeah. is doing an epic you'll you'll hear about oh the first cut of it was five hours long and the first test screening they did was three and a half hours long and now it's 90 minutes right 
Which you can lose things then, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, at that point, I say make a miniseries and move on. You know, I that's actually a great thing. You know, we never talked about that. I, I didn't even think about that. But I think The English Patient as a miniseries with maybe, you know, like four one-hour episodes. That could have been very cool. It could have been very cool. Yeah. And I think it would allow not more cliffhangers, but more suspense to yeah. be built in where each mm-hmm. episode kind of delves a little bit. And by the end of it, you're like, I still don't know who these people are, but I want to watch more yeah. to find out. Yeah. Whereas I kept watching this. I'm like, I don't know who these people are. And I don't just care. Just to the end. Yeah, just tell me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's enough. We're going to go on and on and on and on and on. So let's just skip ahead. Okay. Coming in at number six, we have Braveheart. Uh, when his secret bride is executed for assaulting an English soldier who tried to rape her, William Wallace begins a revolt against King Edward I of England. Um, my one takeaway, where's Chris Pine in this movie? <laughs> you know, we it was just last year, uh, Outlaw King came out, and both of us really liked that film. And, and I agree, I... Outlaw King was made as a spiritual sequel to Braveheart, so, and it was so successful. They actually are making um, a proper sequel to Braveheart of uh, that character. I, I'm, I'm Bruce. Right? Robert, Robert Bruce? Something the Bruce. Yeah. Something, something the Bruce. He's, he, <laughs> he's one of the Bruce. Bruce. Is it Robert the Bruce? I, I think, think it's, it's Robert, a, yeah. Robert the Bruce. They are making a Robert the Bruce sequel to Braveheart, whereas the same actor who right now I'm, I'm forgetting who that is. Um, so I, I can't say. Do you, you have it up? Um, Angus McFadden. Yeah. Starring as this. as He's clearly way too old now to do this, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I watch this movie, and I just can't help but think... If somehow Outlaw King and Braveheart were combined where you've got the the better drama and the better acting of Outlaw King with the fantastic battle sequences in Braveheart because those battle scenes are so good. They're so vivid and realistic in a way that Outlaw King just completely foregone. It, they, they tried to just go for straight brutality with so much CGI blood and, yeah. and stuff like that where you... You're just like, oh, this loses me. I can tell it's all fake. I don't even care. Oh, yeah, someone's head being bashed, but it doesn't look real sort of thing. Whereas Braveheart, I think, does such a good job. Where there's, I know there's a few points where you kind of have a bit of a, a difficult time with graphic violence where I know it was a little bit too much for you, especially yeah. stuff involving horses. Yeah, for sure. And I don't want to say that visceral violence is, is better or I want to see more of it. But when it adds to a story that's supposed to be about this very violent Brutal. and yeah. turbulent time period, you sort of need that. You need it, yeah. And Mel Gibson is obviously very well known for having such graphic violence, you know, Passion of the Christ and Apocalypto and Hacksaw Ridge. It's just, you, you can clearly tell he's got a bit of a violence boner. Um <laughs> And it goes way too far at times in some of his movies. This time it kind of is is, is the right amount to an extent. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like it, it, this, is, this is a bit of a, a tough movie to sort of critique where Mel Gibson, the director, I think does a great job. And Mel Gibson, the actor, does an okay job. Yeah, not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't care for his performance. 
Although I will say that I thought the second half of the film was better than the first. I didn't really believe or accept the romance angle that Braveheart starts off with. It just feels too cheesy and too um, typical. I don't know. There wasn't anything interesting about it. And it just didn't feel real and fully like fleshed out Mm -hmm. their their romantic connection and their feelings for each other and it was just really quick Mm -hmm. also not not to be one who wants anything drawn out but it just didn't seem believable and so it took me a while to get behind this guy's passion and his reasoning for revolting and because he was so peaceful he just wanted to farm he wanted to be left alone and all of a sudden he was in love and now all of a sudden he's like waging a war against the king so I just I would have preferred a little bit more detail in the first half of this film but in the second half um, I thought he shined where he was believable and you felt his anger and you knew his reasoning um, although I think by the end it becomes too much and it's kind of over the top but I can still appreciate it more than the first half it's interesting because I this movie is, is so heavily criticized for being historically inaccurate mm-hmm. like so much so that it usually when you if you're reading a, a listicle of the most historically inaccurate movies this one is always on there um, so this this idea of him only deciding to fight against the English was because they murdered his secret wife is a little bit silly. We're like, just from a storytelling perspective, I understand why you would write that story. Like that, yeah. that, that does make sense. Um, but we know that this fight of having a free and independent Scotland is such a much bigger thing and and as many Scottish people can say it's not you can't boil it down to one person you can't have it down to um you know what what's Gibson's character's name in this movie again I don't I don't recall um um, w- Wallace William Wallace William that's what Wallace. it is yeah right. William Wallace or Robert the Bruce or whoever else you, you want to talk about it's not one person so it's really hard to make a story of one person because it was a concerted effort by a lot of people but like it, it's it just gets it just gets so tough when you're trying to pin the story completely on one person and every motivation kind of goes through them and you understand that you have all these different clan leaders that are trying to come together and work together and find out the best course of action and, and strategize and war and all these sort of things and it's like well what's William Wallace doing all right that's the way to do it yeah. so it's it's a little odd for that it's it's funny like I quite I quite like this movie I, I really enjoy it you know I wasn't expecting to to love it and I wouldn't say I love it but I, I really did like it I think um, Gibson is a much stronger director than he is an actor um, but despite the quality of this this movie is a John Cleese appearance away from being Holy Grail. Yeah. Like every scene, like seeing uh, the army with like their their helmets where it kind of is rounded and, and it has a pointy top. I'm doing hand gestures. You can't see that. I'm trying to show you. 
Um, and I'm like, all I can think about is, is John Cleese as the French uh, castle guard being like, you can't come in. I fart in your general direction and things like that. It, it just like so many different scenes of them marching through the countryside. Yeah, like, just the cinematography too also feels like. Which is hilarious because I'm like, oh, if, if Holy Grail was made after this, that would make sense. They're clearly spoofing this. But Holy Grail was uh-huh. like 25 <laughs> years before it. It's kind of a reverse spoof. A little bit. Because Holy Grail clearly was, as any spoof movie does, you take the truth and elements and then just sort of add a little punchline on the end. That's mm-hmm. what makes it really funny is you're, you're committing to the realism of it and you add a joke at the end. Or you just make the scenario so heightened that it has to be funny. And like every moment, I'm like, oh, the punchline's coming. Where's John Cleese? Where's Michael Palin? Where is all the other Monty Python guys? Graham Chapman, all of them, and, and they didn't show up. I'm like, oh, I, I feel a little let down. <laughs> but that's just me. That is just you. I love it. All right. Coming in at number five, we have Unforgiven. The, the plot is a retired Old West gunslinger, William Mooney, Money, sorry, reluctantly takes on one last job with the help of his old partner and a young man. This movie is an anti-Western, which is a subgenre of the Western ethos. This movie... I feel like, much like I was just describing with Holy Grail, is when you're trying to subvert expectations, you have to first create the expectation. And watching this movie, you get so many familiar plot tropes of a Western movie before it sort of subverts it, especially with the amount of violence that we get. Would you say that it subverted expectations enough or looking back is it just a typical western now um to me i would still classify this as a western so i don't know if it if it did do it enough um but i can definitely see what you're saying and what you're talking about mm-hmm. um th- this is a movie I, I, i've seen before and every time i watch it i always forget just how graphic the violence in this movie can be you know right from the beginning there's there's the scene where a prostitute gets her her face all slashed up and you rewatch and you're like oh i don't remember this but then you remember clint eastwood in a sort of a similar vein to mel gibson uses violence to his advantage when he's crafting a film because it, it heightens everything it makes you you care about the character more because you see it it's more visceral and you feel it um and and you and you sort of forget because the movie goes and goes and goes and you forget and then all of a sudden there'll be another sort of shocking violent incident um you know when gene hackman shows up as little bill he has a a pretty violent scene where he's throwing someone down a case of stairs and he's beating them up and you you had forgotten for a while just how violent this movie is uh and i think that's sort of you you sort of have to pat clint eastwood uh, on the back there for allowing you to get comfortable and then sort of shock the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is a movie, you know, I, I said in the intro, this was a decade of actor-turned-directors putting in their passion projects. And obviously, you know, this wasn't Clint Eastwood's first film, but 
it's obviously his masterpiece at the same time. He put so much into this, and he he, he made his name as uh, a Western hero. That That's all he basically did. He started out, I want to say, on Bonanza or something like that. I, I can't remember what Western TV show he started on. Um, but seeing him in Westerns is such a comforting thing. And then you get this character who is who's very nuanced and complex and has such a set of rules to live by and then frames everything so beautiful sort of i would i would say it's analogous to um john ford in the searchers sort of subverting the john wayne expectations of what we know of that and getting these really beautiful beautiful vista shots and then contrasting it with some sort of despicable characters and it's something i i really appreciate of this movie and one i really like to it um but at the same time i also think Clint Eastwood lets himself look like a bit of an idiot at times, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's kind of this old, rusty, he needs to relearn some of his old tricks and mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. And, and, so, and it makes sense because you know his past. Throughout the movie, we get told who this character is mm-hmm. and what a bad, dangerous person he was. Uh, what a sharpshooter he was and then when we meet him he's older he's got kids his wife has passed away and he's committed to raising his family and then he gets back in the game and he tries to get on a horse and he gets dragged through the mud and and it's such a nice refreshing take where you think of Clint Eastwood and regardless of the, the man we sort of think of today with his political leanings is someone who is very polished and we see this character time and time again as very unpolished. And it's and it, I think that's also part of what makes this a bit of an anti-Western is it really does subvert these expectations of what we would expect a Clint Eastwood Western to be. Sure, yeah. I think this is more, this is like a dark Western. Mm-hmm. Like what you'd call like a real Western. If, mm-hmm. if they showed the truth of what happened in the West kind mm-hmm. of thing. And also I think it does a really good job of sort of focusing on some of the female characters obviously this this movie is so heavily based around eastwood and hackman and morgan freeman that they're they're they take up most of the screen time but there's a lot of shots where a scene will end and the camera will will linger on one of the women you know most of the women are unfortunately prostitutes because the, the movie mostly takes place in a brothel um but you get these these really nice extended takes where the camera will just sort of linger on them long enough where you kind of understand what they're thinking and feeling and how they're processing the information that they just saw and it changes how they they look at a situation and i think that's kind of a nice a good mark on a director who really understands acting and and i think when we get actors who who pick up directing, we either get some of the best movies ever made or, or they're trash. And I think Clint Eastwood is the type of actor-turned-director who really understands focusing on actors and what they're thinking and feeling. And he does a really good job in this. And it's not just the women in this. It's, it's sort of all the characters where he really does understand that you know, you hire someone to to be, you know, the seventh lead in your film, they're still going to come to set with a full backstory and understanding of the character 
and have ideas of, of what they can bring to the table that might not make the final film, but even having that discussion with your director or your fellow scene partners might help add some depth to it. And I think Eastwood, as a director throughout his career, has really thrived on allowing these actors who are not the leads to sort of imbue the scene with, with some more realism. And it's something I really appreciate. And he's really at his peak in Unforgiven for that, despite the fact that I think he has some other peaks. Like uh, Mystic River is one of my favorite movies ever made, too. And so he does a really good job with, with really allowing his, uh, his smaller characters to shine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and add more weight. Mm-hmm. And I think... I think he really brings truth to this idea of there um, there are no small roles, only small actors, where every every actor you bring in will do their work. And yeah. if you trust your actor that you hire to do the work that needs to be done, you will get something special. And right. I think it's something where you know someone, a director like David Lean, who did Lawrence of Arabia, is is famous for thinking of actors as only set pieces right. where they're they're there to be moved in and moved out and not to get in the way of his shot <laughs> um, which he does beautiful vista landscapes no one shoots a landscape better than david lean but he didn't really trust his actors in a way he didn't understand his actors in the way that someone sure. like clint eastwood sure. does yeah we should move on though okay so uh next is number four with dances with wolves Lieutenant Dan John Dunbar, assigned to a remote Western Civil War outpost, befriends wolves and Indians, making him an intolerable aberration in the military. I will preface this by saying that I grew up watching this movie probably every summer. My mom loved this film, and I've seen it many times. And because of that, I do have a bit of a nostalgic um, bias but I also do really appreciate this film. I think the cinematography is beautiful. I love Kevin Costner's performance as John Dunbar in this and just the story that it tells in general. How did you feel about this one, Dakota? I was very apprehensive going into this movie. Um, I didn't want to watch it. I'm not a Kevin Costner fan. I, I could care less about his movies and all I've ever heard about this movie is how it's just a bloated mess with too much going on and a bit of a revisionist history of white man being the savior sort of thing and I was pleasantly surprised it's pretty good I'm still not a hundred percent sold on Kevin Costner uh, I know I know I you we're love gonna him. have some talks later <laughs> I know you love him and I think he does a good enough job he doesn't truly elevate it enough i think much like i was saying with the previous film uh with clint eastwood directing uh adding a lot even mel gibson directing this is three in a row whereas the lead performer was also the director um i would i would say this is closer to my thoughts on Mel Gibson and Braveheart than it is on Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven, where I think he does a fantastic job shooting this film and, and creating some really interesting set pieces than he does with his performance. That said, his performance is better than Mel Gibson's in Braveheart. Here's what I'll say. I think that his quiet moments in this film are his best moments in this film. The silence, the silence scenes and the scenes where it's just him and the wolf or him uh, looking out on scenery or doing his own thing at his base camp, I think, 
are clearly better than anywhere he's interacting with people. Having said that, I still like his whole performance. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think one of the things that I really appreciate it the most is there seems to be a reverence to the land and animals that he is shooting yes. where you really feel his connection to the earth in a way that I don't know how the best way to word this. We understand that indigenous people have a much better connection to this earth than a lot of other Western cultures where there isn't the same respect. When you go hunting, you use the entire animal and you are thanking the animal for what it's providing to you. It's providing you the food, it's providing you uh, yeah. for yeah. the warmth, the, the, the bones become tools, everything like that. And you need to thank the animal for its sacrifice so that way your people can keep living but at the same time, you're not disturbing their landscape. And I think um, Costner approaches filming them with the same sort of respect, which I think really translates when he is shooting these uh, indigenous cultures and tribes, that that respect is passed on to them as well. And I don't feel at any time that he was being either disrespectful or condescending to uh, these people's way of life, which no, I really totally. appreciate. Yeah, I definitely think that there was no condescension there. Especially, like, you know, I, I, I think of, you know, Driving Miss Daisy and how it's very easy to see how condescending the uh, depiction of being an African-American in the South or being a Jewish person in the South is both then and now. In Rain Man, the depicting people with disabilities then versus now. Dances with Wolves, you know, the world hasn't gotten any better at treating Native people with, with respect. You know, a lot of times people talk about being in Canada, how there is little to no racism. Well, you say that until you get to a city or a community that has a large native population yeah. and you are shocked at just how blatant the racism and discrimination is against them and no one seems to care. And this being taking place in the early 90s where it was even less acceptable to give a shit about native rights I think he does a pretty decent job. Could have been even more respectful and reverent to these people. Absolutely. But I think considering what he's doing as far as it being a movie of a white man savior, I think it does a pretty decent job being respectful. And he gets some really good performances out of Native actors where we don't see enough of them highlighted. Would you consider it him being your typical white man savior? Because I feel more that... They kind of save him more than he saves them. They do. They do. It's it's one of those types of things where in order to sell a movie to a mass audience, you need to have a conduit into the community. Mm -hmm. So the audience's conduit is Kevin Costner's white man because people can understand that and understand that, oh, I'm in a new community. I don't understand their rituals and I need to learn and things like that. So it's a bit of a you get those sort of similar tropes and obviously by the end of the movie once you've sort of fully bought into it I do agree that it is not so much him saving them but them saving him because there literally are scenes of them saving him mm -hmm. 
but on the surface, you know, the movie is sort of sold as a, a white man's journey into the native land. Sure. So it's sort of that. Okay. It is it is very beautifully shot, and I am and I'm stunningly impressed with with how well he did uh, with his cinematographer to to get some of the sequences he got. Mm-hmm. All right, coming in at number three is Titanic. A movie I don't think anyone had ever heard of. It's the story of a 17-year-old aristocrat who falls in love with a kind but poor artist aboard the luxurious, ill-fated RMS Titanic. This was the first time I have ever heard of this movie. Had you ever heard of it before? No, it was completely new to me. And it stars uh, some people called Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. Where two, are they then these days? I don't know. I don't think they did anything, anything really. Yeah. Uh, and some guy named Jim Cameron. James Cameron. I think only his friends call him Jim. Who are we kidding? This is, for the longest time, up until like the last few years, the biggest movie of all time. It was the biggest movie until Avatar, also directed by Cameron, and only recently just passed by Avengers Endgame of being the most profitable movie of all time. Titanic was everywhere. For it, it, I remember when it came out, I think it was in theaters for like two years yeah, straight. Yeah, it was a very long time, yeah. And the soundtrack, despite it being, you know, you got the, the, the very famous Celine Dion song, My Heart Will Always Go On, um, I, I think I just said that wrong, but that's fine. Uh, this soundtrack is almost all opera and classical music. Yeah, yeah it is. It was the number one we record of the year. Who didn't have that album? <laughs> Everyone had it. But it's not your typical musical score. Mm-hmm. It really isn't. Like the fact that this movie was what it became is absolutely shocking. Such a cultural touchstone moment. Um, these the movie you know i i think you can't really talk about this movie without talking about the the chemistry of leo and kate is it really an all-time great love story Mm, no i don't consider it an all-time great love story then what works for you what works for me i mean so much production value costumes music i think the the sum of the movie is, is kind of, or the parts of its movie is better than its sum. But I still really enjoyed it, and I had so much invested in both characters, and actually all characters, not just not just the the Kate and Leo characters, but you know the captain of the ship and Kathy Bates' character and even Billy Zane's character. They were all fully realized and had their own distinct view on the world and of their class and I think that's what made it the most interesting to me and despite all that might be the second worst script of this entire group next to driving Miss Daisy <laughs> like the one-liners the are so bad and he does Cameron just tries so much to sort of in, in sort of a similar sense to Forrest Gump, where you, it's shoehorning every sort of cultural event that you can for, for 1912, 1911, whenever this movie takes place, um, into the script. And every time it happens, you're just like, oh, again, like he's talking about Freud and Picasso and all this stuff. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Oh, who is this Freud guy? I don't know. And I'm just like, oh, my God, can you... 
come up with a worse punchline than what you're doing. But despite Cameron trying to absolutely sabotage this movie, there are so many redeemable aspects. Obviously, first and foremost is the scale of this movie. You know, there, there's some not so good CGI shots of when it's showing the full ship, but the more intimate moments when near the end when, when the ship is, is sinking and you get like hallways rushing with water and, and people trapped in a room with rising water and, and people hanging on for their lives. These closer moments where the camera zoomed in on a specific person absolutely stunning there's a reason why cameron is one of the most successful filmmakers of all times can't write a story to save his life but can shoot some of the most epic moments i think what makes those moments so epic too is the, is the sound mixing mm-hmm. i love the the sound of the ship like the different noises in the the hull of the ship that's happening during those silent times or the sounds of water or you know different metals clinking against each other or plates hitting forks and things like that i think that's what makes this such a like tactile film to, mm-hmm. to watch i think the the two lead performances aren't great i think it took me so long to appreciate leonardo dicaprio it's only been in the last few years really since the departed onwards have I been able to appreciate what he does and even go back in some of his earlier films and sort of also appreciate and Kate Winslet is obviously one of the most talented actresses ever she is so good but I'm not fully sold on everything that they're doing they're so young in this movie and I think they're still trying to figure out what's going on Leo is obviously just the heartthrob at the time Mm -hmm. and you know we talked about Tom Cruise bringing the Tom Cruise-ness this is Leo bringing the Leoness, and we get charm and smarm and a bunch of different other things, but like there isn't a ton of depth to his character. And, and Kate Winslet, a lot of times, just sort of feels like she's there to just be the damsel in distress For sort sure, of thing. 100%. You, you mentioned some really good supporting performances. Kathy Bates had so much humor and heart where you just can't help but love her. She seems to be the only one that's able to deliver these lines with some real conviction billy zane has his moments as being the sort of bad boy sort of antagonist to to leo's main character uh gloria stewart as the old rose is is okay bill paxton i think has way too many cheesy lines to really be believable um who he's obviously the the james cameron stand-in uh because cameron just want to as we've here time and time again or the reason why he makes movies is just utterly ridiculous he wanted to uh explore the bottom of the ocean and he couldn't get any money so he's like well what if i make it into a movie and they're like that will pay for and they gave him all the money in the world and he turned in this because he just wanted to go diving at the bottom of the ocean which is you know the most quintessential james cameron story you can come up with which is hilarious um and i think it really shows you know i I made a a a comment about david lean being able to shoot the scenery like no one else james cameron i think is very similar in that vein where he can shoot epic action thrilling scenes like no one else you know he's done this his whole career where performances and script are a little on the creaky side but overall 
everything else he does overpowers that. Yeah. I think we probably disagree how we rate this movie a little bit. I I think our our analysis on this movie differs, but we come to the same conclusions. Okay. Where we're, so. we're just sort of maybe some of the things we we appreciate. Uh, we obviously we, we both appreciate the the technical marvel of it a bit more. Right. Um, but just I think some of, maybe some of the finer parts where we going back and forth when we were watching it. We we probably I think we differed just minorly on different things. But you, it's like when you're doing a an s uh, like a, an exam and you have to show your work yeah our answer is the same but the way we show <laughs> we the work is a little different. bit differently yeah yeah, yeah. so 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 that's it um but let's move on okay number two uh, schindler's list in german occupied poland during world war ii industrialist oscar schindler gradually becomes concerned for his jewish work workforce after witnessing their persecution by the nazis this is Clearly and evidently a very heavy film to watch and deservedly so is three hours, I I feel. Um, well crafted, well acted, overall quite a film to watch. I, can't, I wouldn't classify it as an enjoyable film to watch because no one would want to watch this enjoyingly, but it is a film I think is important. It, it really is and I, and I agree with you of it's a hard watch. I, I've seen it, I think, only once before, and I was dreading rewatching it because it's such an emotionally taxing film. The What had happened during the Holocaust, especially how this movie, I, I believe, focuses on, I don't know if it's Auschwitz directly uh, or, or another concentration camp. I can't remember. I believe it's Auschwitz uh, in, in the Krakow ghetto in Poland and everything that's going on is just so hard to watch but i think spielberg knew he needed to make this film Mm -hmm. being a a, a jewish descent he is jewish and being born just after world war ii ended i believe only like a year or something after it ended this was history that he was so closely related to his parents were fully fledged adults during this era his family everyone he knew experienced this where if you were Jewish you knew someone who was uh, in a concentration camp or had to flee from Germany or Poland or France or wherever else Jewish people were living in Eastern Europe at the time and the toll it took on families and how many people lost their lives and knowing the weight that was on Spielberg's shoulders he absolutely delivered. He was able to deliver such a touching, intimate portrait while also being able to pull the camera back and show the toll on an entire group of people. Absolutely, yeah. And, and it's absolutely monumental, even more so realizing that this movie came out the same year as Jurassic Park. As a one-two punch for a director, I don't know... I, I like... I don't understand how he's able to do such two very wildly different and successful films and put so much heart and soul into them and both of them being considered two of the greatest films of their respective genres. Yeah, it's very impressive, Mm -hmm. for sure. And then you got like these performances where Liam Neeson 
at the time, you know, he was sort of well-known, but he wasn't at the stature he is today, really turning in one of the most empathetic and heartbreaking performances of someone who, even at the end, knowing that he could have saved one more person and, yeah. and how that has crushed him. I, I like I think in the movie they, they say he saves over 2,000 people. And you think about that, you're like, oh my God, how did someone risk their life during this era and still manage to save 2,000 lives? Like, you know, whatever your, your definition of how you want to describe people, that's a saint. Someone that is able to do that, that is... That is godly. That is saintly. That is whatever adjective you want to put on someone. That is a hero. That is right. a real superhero. The work that they did. And and knowing that this is a true story, that Oscar Schindler is a real person, is just... Just thinking about it makes me want to, like, curl up into a ball and right. cry. Yeah, and I think what brings it all home is the ending of this film where you see the... Um, the family members of these and some of the survivors that Oscar Schindler was able to um, help escape and escape death, and they come to 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 Oscar's grave to pay their respects, and it's very touching and it's very heavy, and it's you just realize that without him, so many generations and so many families wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. So it's it's gut wrenching, it's it's heartfelt, and it's. It's. I think it's the perfect way to have ended that film. Yeah, and and I, I read somewhere. I wish I, I thought to bring it up, but they're they actually calculated the amount of Schindler's descendants right. that there are from all the people he saved, and it's thousands upon thousands of people, and they're they're spread all over the world yeah. now. And you know, the the fact that you could just and be like those ten thousand people wouldn't exist mm-hmm. because. Oscar Schindler didn't do the work that he did is just absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. And then on the flip side, you know, we all know Hitler's the bad guy and, and, and Goebbels and, and everyone else and, and is in the SS and the, and the Third Reich and all that sort of stuff. We know they're the bad guys and that's easy to picture. But then you have someone like Ray Fiennes who is able to bring this dark... I don't want to say sensuality because it's not that. It's this dark energy with a little bit of charisma put in there where you mm-hmm. understand the menace behind that and the power. And of someone, you know, there's a scene where he's got his shirt off, he's smoking a cigarette, smoke, uh, shooting his, his rifle into the camp, and he's got this gut, and you're just like, this is a horrible person through and through, but he still has a weird magnetism too in a way that you don't appreciate or or even enjoy but it's it it just sort of like makes you feel queasy because he's got all the elements of you understand why they're successful he he rose to who he is because he knows how to charm people and he knows the right thing to say at the right time to the right person and you get a few moments of this especially when he starts sleeping with one of the prisoners and he then after a while you're like oh maybe he he under he understands what he's doing and then he talks about how uh it's not real because she's not a real person she's less than human she's not she's less than the dog that they have because she's a jewish person and he's like saying 
basically what amounts to sort of shower thoughts where you have these sort of like random bursts of thoughts, but he's saying them out loud and they're so dark and despicable that like it's it's like, oh, you thought for a second he wasn't a truly horrible person. No, he really is the absolute scum of the earth. Yeah. And he does such a good job with it where it's a sort of performance where at the end of it where you're like, I didn't like you. I don't want to give credit to you in any sense. But you were so good, but I'm not going to give you the satisfaction, Rafe, of saying you did a good job. Yeah, you don't want to commend someone for that role. It betrays your own instincts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's so so tough, and it's it's such a long movie, and he does such a a great job. Um, Spielberg does such a great job of of doing it, and, and we really can't commend him enough. That said, I think we are on to our number one film, which is, of course, Silence of the Lambs. Good morning. Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. May I speak with you? You're one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? I am, yes. May I see your credentials? Certainly. Closer, please. Closer. That expires in one week. You're not real FBI, are you? Which is the story of a young FBI cadet must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer, a madman who skins his victims. This movie, I we watched for the first time a few years ago, and I was so nervous going into it because I don't do horror movies well. And I know it had the legacy of being a good movie, but I don't think I could prepare myself for just how good this movie is did you find it scary even having seen it before or does the technical aspects and and thriller aspects overshadow anything of this movie that might be scary yeah i mean i had actually never seen it before so when we oh you mean from when we first when we first watched it yeah 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 uh no it is still super suspenseful and thrilling and very uh, mentally disturbing disturbing yeah, yeah that's the word I'm looking for um, and no matter I feel like no matter how many times you you will have watched it every time you go back to watch it it's still gonna make you your skin crawl that's mm-hmm. probably a bad way to describe it um, but yeah like the this character and the challenges that come up and and the, the rationale and the feelings that uh, Clarice has to deal with confronting this, you know, cannibal weirdo, and also to try and find this other madman. Like it kind of crosses lines of like, what, how far do you go to do the right thing? Kind of, kind of feeling. I I will say as someone who doesn't like watching scary movies, there is. A few elements that that still really get to me most of you know the, the buffalo bill stuff doesn't 
isn't scary for me until we get to the very end and we get to the famous scene where Clarice is in the dark and Buffalo Bill has the night vision goggles mm-hmm. on and and that's the the one scariest moment for me and it, and I think Jonathan Demme does a good job putting that sequence at the very end because you build so much suspension that when you get to that you know your heart is in your throat and just beating so loudly that you can just feel it throughout your body and you're so nervous and you don't know what's going on and I still have a hard time watching it I think that's the one true horror element of it but I think uh, there is another element that's really uneasy and hard to watch it's this idea of Jodie Foster being basically the only real female character in this film for a reason she is specifically cast Jodie Foster is is very small she's short she's very slight in her frame and she's in this world that is dominated by men Mm -hmm. you know she's at this FBI Academy almost all men she's in this world of serial killers all men and you understand very quickly the peril of someone of Jodie Jodie Foster someone that sort of looks like her she's pretty she's young she's she's small and slender and all this sort of thing the peril that she is putting herself in just being in these worlds and you get a few scenes where she walks into a room full of cops and she's a foot and a half shorter than everyone and the camera angle shows every man staring directly at her and so it's the camera showing these men looking directly into the camera we know that the camera is supposed to be Clarice at this moment in just this weird uneasy threat of violence that could come across her at any given time and we get this when she's visiting the mental hospital as well and and there's just several moments where you're just like oh in a different movie or a different scene there's this very uh uncomfortable threat of of violence against her at any given time and I think Demi does a great job of doing that and Jodie Foster does a great job of doing her best not to let it get to her even though we see at certain points it sort of consumes her overwhelms her and her performance of being able to overcome that is what makes it so good for sure definitely this is this is a movie that is has is more uneasy than it is scary yeah a lot of the movie is hard to watch for sure um and anthony hopkins i think does a, a terrific job he has limited screen time like i, I want to say he's on the screen for maybe 15 minutes there's a reason why he won best actor he gives such a powerhouse performance in such a limited amount of screen time and that's you know making it work yeah no his scenes are totally believable like they he just like captures you in those moments and you feel like you're in Clarice's uh, spot talking to this person viewing him through this glass and you can feel yourself and Clarice being manipulated by this guy and so it's so real I think that's what makes it so convincing and such a strong performance mm-hmm. you they, they do a really good job of you're introduced to Hannibal Lecter and we're told what a, a terrifying and menacing person he is and then you meet him and you're instantly disarmed and all of his early scenes we have been we let our guard down to not see who he truly is and then when he does his prison escape mm-hmm. and he basically rips a man's face off 
and we and where's that and where's it and and what he does and then just like all of a sudden you're just like i forgot who this character was and everything that they said at the beginning right. is absolutely true you should have never let your guard down for a second mm-hmm. and and you know he comes and goes in the story and every time he sort of pops up again you get disarmed you you get lulled into this false sense of security well maybe he likes me well maybe he trusts me maybe i'm i'm fine and then he does something absolutely horrific or says something absolutely brutal and it just it overwhelms you yeah Yeah, it's 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 so it's so difficult um to really to really watch um you know this movie sort of got a lot of criticism at the time of buffalo buffalo bill's um performance of being a uh is he a transgendered person or at the time calling him a transvestite and things like that and it got a lot of criticisms from the trans community because at the time there were only there were very few performances in in tv and movies that were that way um and so it was sort of really poorly received. And I, I understand, but I think at the same time, we need to look at it as this isn't who is supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, the person that represents the entire community. Um, and I think once you sort of remember that, it's a lot easier to sort of get past that. Not to say that the performance isn't also problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this movie is terrific and all-time great. And, you know, you stack this up against most other Best Picture winners, and I would put it at or near the top of the pole of all-time most deserving films and an actual truly deserving Best Picture winner, not just Best Picture of American Cinema right. or Best Picture of that year because it was a weak field. It, it truly is one of the Best Pictures. Yeah, I think so. Now, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we are going to give out our awards. First, we are going to name our supporting actors. So for me, I am going to uh, combat what I just said about uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs and name Anthony Hopkins as my best supporting actor. Yes, he won best actor, but he is on screen for such a short amount of time, he is not the leading actor. I don't care. This is Jodie Foster's movie. They don't need to have name someone of who is the, the actor or actress that spends the most time on screen as the lead performer. Anthony Hopkins is not the lead in this movie. He is a supporting performance and a damn good one at that. That said, I will listen to arguments that say otherwise. <laughs> I just don't think it is right. <laughs> I think that because his character is the strongest and most influential male character in this film, I'm okay with him winning. Uh, best actor and not supporting actor because I feel like he's not I mean although he is supporting Jodie Foster's character I feel like as a male 
character in the film, it, it is him and he stands alone. I guess so. <laughs> who do you have for supporting actor? Okay, for my best supporting actor, I have Dustin Hoffman, who you may also could argue is a best co-lead actor with Tom Cruise, but because it's more Tom Cruise's story and his journey and his revelation with his his family and his brother and his father, I'm going to give supporting actor to Dustin Hoffman. I think he handles the... Um, the role very well and I think as you mentioned which could do a lot more with editing and just the way he views things his facial expressions his mannerisms the way he delivers his lines I think were all top-notch and as much as I didn't fully enjoy the film um, I did enjoy his performance agree uh, we actually have a tie for supporting actress we both named Kathy Bates from Titanic you know, we've had this issue before in previous decades. It is really tough sometimes to name uh, some of the p female performers. The Oscars for such a long time have truly ignored stories about women. And this is a decade that, that doesn't have a ton of super strong uh, supporting performances by women, even lead performances. We'll get to that later, though. Um, but Kathy Bates really sort of shines as doing the best with a terrible script, in my opinion, in Titanic, and really delivering some much-needed life and energy into that movie. Yeah, definitely. I think she embodies the role of a supporting actress. She is there for the other characters, but she has her own take and feelings towards things she's fully present and yeah definitely has a lightness everyone else either is sad or angry or cruel she's light and this is mm -hmm. a woman like whose true character i think was on several sinking ships if i remember correctly uh, yeah uh, what was her? kathy brown or something like that i believe her name was mm. not kathy brown Something I, I brown, remember, yeah. and uh, but she still had this like upbeat, optimistic outlook on life, and I think she fully brings that like to this performance. So I definitely appreciate it. And she steals uh, every she scene brought. she's in. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. All right, uh, now for best actor, I have Clint Eastwood. I think he does such a great job, sort of subverting the expectations that we would expect from a Clint Eastwood in a Western movie and makes him grimy and dirty and old and uncoordinated and trying to figure things out. And when he finally does get it all together, it's the Clint Eastwood we knew and we wanted to see the whole time. And it just makes it that much more satisfying. And maybe I'm also partially giving this to him because he does such a great job as director really channeling his inner John Ford. But I, I really appreciated everything he did with that role in Unforgiven. It, it's such a, a tour de force. And as much as I don't care for Clint Eastwood, the person, him as an actor and filmmaker, I'm usually almost always blown away by what he does. And, and this is, you know, sort of the, the, the peak of the mountain for the Eastwood filmography. Yeah, I applaud your pick. <laughs> uh, I will see your Clint Eastwood director slash actor and raise you a Kevin Costner director slash actor. Um, as I mentioned before, I thought his quiet scenes were his strongest scenes and I just appreciated 
his level of sereneness and humility that he brought to his character in stumbling through things he didn't know, of coming to terms with what he thought his world was and how things should be. And yeah, I just also just loved his direction and what he did with the whole the film in, in general. So I gave my best actor award to Kevin Costner. Okay, it's your award to give. <laughs> we have our best actress, uh, which much like supporting actress, we tied. Um, one, because I think above and beyond it's the right pick. But two, there just unfortunately aren't really many lead female performances, and that's Jodie Foster. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, we, we just touched on it, and she brings a level of confidence and insecurities to her performance that makes her really relatable and her performance and portrayal just makes the film even more tense and suspenseful. I think, you know, every every character story we ever see in movies, uh, we as the audience are supposed to understand what they're going through and, and be able to put ourselves in their shoes. That's obviously the goal. I would say it very rarely happens. You know, we can appreciate different character motivations and stories that they're going through. But, you know, I love Star Wars. I don't see myself in any of those characters. Really? That said, Jodie Foster as Clarice, you absolutely understand what it means to be uh, a woman who has always been told no and being able to say, well, you're wrong and I'm going to prove you wrong yeah. and go in with the confidence and vulnerability and, and empathy that she has as a person and totally imbue the screen with her presence in a way that is so rarely seen. Like th this, is an, this is an all-time great performance and I think Jonathan Demme did such a great job capturing what she did on screen and, and highlighting it that you can't help but totally be convinced and, and walk in her shoes the whole time where there isn't a moment, man or woman, whoever is watching this movie, being able to understand who right. this Clarice character is. Yeah. And it's absolutely a testament to th this film, which brings us really to Best Picture. <laughs> and and without a doubt, it's Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we both put this as number one. We both liked it for the same reasons and for the same touchy points that we just talked about it, just as a whole with the performances, with the direction, with the script. It's all there. It has everything. It ticks every box. You know, we, I'm... After all these episodes are done, I plan on doing a, a complete ranking of all the Best Picture winners. And this is easily in the top 10, maybe even hovering around the top five of, of Best Picture films ever awarded. And it's totally deserved. Everything this movie does is so on point. It sets the mood right. It captures the performances. The screenplay is excellent. The cinematography, the music. Like, you cannot point out any part of this movie that doesn't work. There's there's nothing about it that doesn't work. I, uh, I have, you know, looking at my notes, I have, I have no quibbles with anything it does. Like, this is, this is a near-perfect film. This is a, a near-perfect thriller, whatever you want to call it. Just 
utterly flawless filmmaking and, and I truly am devastated that Jonathan Demme is no longer around able to to make films because this is an all-time great yeah well I really hope you enjoyed this uh, breakdown of the Oscars best picture winners um, we are hopefully going to get to the next decade sooner than when we last left off which was I believe about two years ago uh, so I really hope you enjoyed it Make sure you follow the show at ContraZoomPod on both Instagram and on Twitter. You can send me an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. You can also follow me at DGAPA, both on Instagram and Twitter. Let me know, what would you pick for best picture of this decade? Do you have any faults? Is my criticism of Kevin Costner warranted or not warranted? Give me all of your feedback. Uh, this show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine, and thank you so much for listening. we are reviving a long-running and long-dormant series, ranking every Best Picture winner decade by decade. The last time we recorded one of... <laughs> How many times are you going to do that? I don't know. It should be the last one. Try this one more time. <clears throat>